Welcome to Speak Up and Stay Alive Radio with author, speaker, and your host, Pat Rulo, serving you a generous helping of everything you need to know to help you and your loved ones stay safe during any doctor or hospital visit. The program is not intended to replace medical advice from a licensed professional, but rather to encourage you to become a well-informed participant in your health and well-being. And now, your host, Pat Rulo. Hello and welcome. I'm Pat Rulo, the voice for patient safety, where each week we delve into little-known healthcare and hospital hazards, as well as other fringe topics that affect your health and well-being. I'm so happy you've taken the time to join me, and today I have lots to share with you. So, let's dig right in, shall we? So, I was thinking about dying the other day, and came to the conclusion that I am not so afraid of dying that I'm not going to live. And I think it's that mentality that pushes me to understand anything I am told. Instead of fearing it, I try to find out more, to understand, to get to the truth. This then made me think about liars. You know, people who lie. We all know people or have someone in our life who either colors reality, bends the truth, or just out and out lies. I don't know about you, but once I find that someone has lied to me, I view anything further that comes out of their mouth as something to verify. So these two thoughts naturally pull me into thinking about the coronavirus. I've talked about it on this program these last few weeks, exposing the conflicting information and often out and out lies we have been told. Lies that scare people so much, fearing for their very lives, that they stay home, all masked up, isolated, that they are no longer living. Believing misinformation from the same people over and over again, not questioning, just so afraid of dying from a virus that they stop living today. Well, today, I'm here to tell you to start living again as I share some facts. I read a great article on Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s website, Children's Defense Fund. Org. It's titled Lockdown Lunacy, The Thinking Person's Guide. It was written by J.B. Handley. He says, for anyone willing to look, there are so many facts that tell the true story, and it goes something like this. Knowing what we know today about COVID-19's infection fatality rate, asymmetric impact by age and medical condition, non-transmissibility by asymptomatic people and in outdoor settings, near zero fatality rate for children and the basic understanding of viruses, locking down society was a boneheaded policy decision so devastating to society that historians may judge it as the all-time worst decision ever made. Worse, as these clear facts have become available, many policymakers haven't shifted their positions despite the fact that every hour under any stage of lockdown has a domino effect of devastation to society meanwhile the media with a few notable exceptions is oddly silent on all the good news luckily an unexpected group of heroes across the political landscape and many of them doctors and scientists have emerged to tell the truth despite facing extreme criticism and censorship 
from an angry mob desperate to continue fighting an imaginary war. So my goal is to engage in known facts. Fact one, the infection fatality rate for COVID-19 is somewhere between 0.07 and 0.20 in line with the seasonal flu. The infection fatality rate math of any new virus always declines over time as more data becomes available, as any virologist could tell you. In the early days of COVID-19, where we only had data from China, there was a fear that the infection fatality rate could be as high as 3.4%, which would indeed be cataclysmic. On April 17th, the first study was published from Stanford researchers that should have ended all lockdowns immediately, as the scientists reported that their research implies the infection is much more widespread than indicated by the number of confirmed cases and pegged the infection fatality rate between 0.12 and 0.2%. The researchers also speculated that the final fatality rate as more data emerged would likely be lower. So just for some context, the seasonal flu has an infection rate of 0.1%, smallpox, 30%. Like all good science, the Stanford data has now been replicated so many times that our own Centers for Disease Control came out recently to announce that their best estimate showed that the infection fatality rate is below 0.3%. In this article on the CDC's new data, they also highlighted how the cascading declines in the infection rate has removed all the fears of doomsday. In all cases, facts matter. Here's fact number two. The risk of dying from COVID-19 is much higher than the average infection fatality rate for older people and those with comorbidities and is much lower than average for younger people and narrowing zero for children. Of all the fatal cases in New York State, two-thirds were in patients over 70 years of age, and 90% of all fatal cases had an underlying illness. If you do not already have an underlying chronic condition, your chances of dying are small regardless of age. Protecting those at most risk of dying from COVID-19 while relaxing the strictures on others provides a way forward in the epidemic, given that the virus is unlikely to disappear in the foreseeable future. Such approaches would, however, require a shift away from the notion that we were all seriously threatened by the disease, which has led to levels of personal fear being strikingly mismatched to the objective risk of death. Fact number three, emerging science shows no spread of COVID-19 in the community, such as shopping, restaurants, barbershops, etc. We just learned that asymptomatic people, people who have no symptoms, infected with COVID-19 are very unlikely to be able to spread infection to others. Emerging and published science shows transmission of COVID-19 in retail establishments is extremely unlikely. Professor Hendrik Streeck from the University of Bonn is leading a study in Germany and the hard-hit region of Heinsberg, and his conclusions from laboratory work already completed is very clear. It says there is no significant risk of catching the disease when you go shopping. Severe outbreaks of the infection were always a result of people being closer together over longer periods of time. When we took samples from door handles, phones, or toilets, it has not been possible to cultivate the virus in the laboratory on the basis of these swabs. Uh Uh-oh. 
You mean closing parks, closing stores, wearing gloves and masks at the grocery store, fumigating our groceries, and just being generally paranoid wasn't necessary? Fact number four. Published science shows COVID-19 is not spread outdoors. Tests done over a five-week period beginning in January 2020, trying to determine where the outbreak started in the home, workplace, outside. What did they discover? Almost 80% of outbreaks happened in the home environment. The rest happened in crowded buses and trains. But what about outdoors? The scientists wrote, all identified outbreaks of three or more cases occurred in an indoor environment, which confirms that sharing indoor space is a major infection risk. The transmission of respiratory infections is an indoor phenomenon. British Columbia, Canada's top health officials say medical professionals have a pretty clear picture of how the virus is transmitted. There is absolutely no evidence that this disease is airborne, and we know that if it were airborne, then the measures that we took to control COVID-19 would not have worked. We are very confident that the majority of transmission of this virus is through droplet and contact route. The overwhelming majority of transmissions occur through closed, prolonged contact, and that is not the pattern of transmission we see through airborne diseases. So much for people riding bikes and running with masks on. Fact number five, science shows masks are ineffective to halt the spread of COVID-19. And then I talked all about this for the last few weeks, so I'm not really going to go over that again. Other than to say from all the studies I've read, it makes it crystal clear. Masks for the general population show no evidence of working to either to slow the spread of respiratory viruses or to protect people. Fact number six, there is no science to support the magic number of a six-foot barrier. The reason for the recommendation to keep six feet of distance from your fellow citizens during this pandemic dates back to 1930. Back then, scientists established that droplets of liquid released by coughs or sneezes will either evaporate quickly in the air or be dragged by gravity down to the ground. And the majority of those droplets, they reckoned, would land within one to two meters. And that is why it is said that the greatest risks come from having the virus coughed at you from close range or somebody who coughs on a surface and then you touch your face. How conclusive is that? Here's some grade school level talk from the CDC. They say, I quote, COVID-19 is thought, there's a scientific word, thought, to spread mainly through close contact from person to person in respiratory droplets from someone who is infected. People who are infected often have symptoms of illness. Some people without symptoms may, there's another scientific word, may be able to spread the virus, which science from China has proven to be untrue. Now, not only would that sort of conclusion warrant a failing grade in any postdoctoral program, I'm pretty sure the average eighth grade science teacher would take a red pen to the passage and use of the words in a scientific paper thought some may. Okay. The CDC also can't quite make up its mind about the safety of large gatherings in the COVID era. In mid-March, the agency asked us to limit gatherings of 250 people or more. A few weeks later, the White House, at the behest of the CDC, urged Americans to avoid gatherings of more than 10 people. There is no science, however, to support either number. What is so fateful about 250 people? 
why not 175 186 and why 10 people why not 16 or 17 and this takes dead aim at so many governors who are absolutely running with these completely unsupportable recommendations Fact number seven, the idea of locking down an entire society had never been done and has no supportable science, only theoretical modeling. In fact, the first time the idea was ever raised to lock down everyone was in 2006. Bet you didn't know that. At the time, cooler heads prevailed and criticized the ideas, notably this critique from Dr. D.A. Henderson, the man who led the public effort to eradicate smallpox. He was convinced that it made no sense to force schools to close or public gatherings to stop. Teenagers would escape their homes to hang out at the mall. School lunch programs would close, and impoverished children would not have enough to eat. Hospital staffs would have a hard time going to work if their children were home. Soon after he said this, several other colleagues penned an important paper encapsulating many of these ideas. There are no historical observations or scientific studies that support the confinement by quarantine of groups of possibly infected people for extended periods in order to slow the spread of influenza. A World Health Organization writing group, after reviewing the literature and considering contemporary international experience, concluded that forced isolation and quarantine are ineffective and impractical. And they ended with a sentence so important. Here it is. The negative consequences of large-scale quarantine are so extreme. Forced confinement of sick people with the well, complete restriction of movement of large populations, difficulty in getting critical supplies, medicines, and food to people inside the quarantine zone, that this mitigation measure should be eliminated from serious consideration. Wow. And I'm sitting here looking at, an, uh, looking at a graph from the World Health Organization 2019 uh, where they list uh, 18 possible non-pharmaceutical measures for countries to take in a pandemic. And under the category not recommended in any circumstances are these. Contact tracing. Oh yeah, that's another goodie that's coming along, right? Quarantine of exposed individuals entry and exit screening i mean there's a list right here i'm looking at it um not recommended in any circumstances so the obvious question if there was no science to support a lockdown and we'd never actually done one before and many in public health said it would be a terrible idea why did it happen well, the first answer is that the World Health Organization early on in the pandemic chose to praise the Chinese response of locking down Hubei province, which effectively served to legitimize the practice worldwide, despite the extreme limitations of data available to anyone about the Chinese lockdown's actual effectiveness. Ugh. And it was this more than anything else that persuaded governments across the world to lock down their citizens. And the second answer is that newly created disease models scared the living daylights out of the world leaders, and the modelers stood ready to offer a simple solution to their made-up numbers. Lock everything down now. Fact number eight, the epidemic models of COVID-19 have been disastrously wrong, and both the people and the practice of modeling has terrible history. We use the Imperial College model. 
it's safe to say that the reason the United States locked down and the reason the White House extended their lockdowns was almost exclusively due to the models created by Imperial College Professor Neil Ferguson. And please note, this Ferguson character co-founded the MRC Center for Global Infectious Disease Analysis based in Imperial in 2008. It is the leading body advising national governments on pathogen outbreaks. It gets tens of millions of dollars in annual funding from, dun, 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 guess who? Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And it works with the UK National Health Service, the US Centers for Disease Prevention and Control, the CDC, and it's tasked with supplying the World Health Organization with rapid analysis of urgent infectious disease problems. Officials have said the Imperial College's eye-popping 2.2 million death projection convinced President Trump to stop dismissing the outbreak and take it more seriously. And this is what convinced Trump to extend restrictions for 30 days and abandon his push to reopen parts of the country by Easter. What's interesting is that this Ferguson character has a history of massive overestimations of pandemics, but uh, apparently no one bothered to consider that in taking in his advice. In 2002, he predicted that between 50 and 50,000 people would likely die from exposure to mad cow disease in beef. It turned out there was 177 deaths. 2005, he said that up to 200 million people could be killed from the bird flu. In the end, only 282 people died worldwide. 2009, swine flu, he predicted that the uh, case fatality rate would be 1.5%. In the end, it killed 457 people in the UK, and that was a death rate of 0.026%. I don't know, but don't you think that history should have mattered more before relying on his model to lock down our entire country? Oh, and remember this, he recently resigned from his position because he broke lockdown curfew to have an affair with a married woman. Oh, good grief. Fact number 10, Florida locked down late, opened early, and is doing fine, despite predictions of doom. Governor DeSantis said, I didn't put much stock in dire projections. We kind of lost confidence very early on in models. We look at them closely, but how can you rely on something when it says you're peaking in a week and then the next day you've already peaked? Instead, he said, we really started focusing on just what we saw. Instead, they took a rifle-shot approach on the citizens most at risk, and that was nursing home residents, of which Florida has the most in the nation. He said that the guidance from the CDC was changing frequently, so they came up with their own plan. Fact number, where am I, 10? New York's above-average death rate appears to be driven by a fatal policy error combined with aggressive intubations. The tragedy is that it didn't have to be this way. Massive deaths of elderly individuals in nursing homes, nosocomial infections, and those are hospital-acquired infections that I told you is going to be running rampant in hospitals and in these nursing homes. A very unfortunate decision of the governors in New York and New Jersey was to have COVID-19 patients sent to nursing homes. Basically a recipe for disaster, don't you think? So when your governor tries to tell you that their destructive decision to lock everyone down saved you from being New York, uh, remember Florida. Fact number 11, public health officials and disease epidemiologists do not consider the other negative societal consequences of lockdowns. If you asked me for a suggestion for how to lose a few pounds and I said stop eating or drinking anything, would you take my advice? 
I mean, it would work to achieve your goals, but you might not like the side effects. Well, that's basically what has happened here. Look at what Dr. Fauci said to Congress earlier this month. I'm a scientist, a physician, and a public health official. I give advice according to the best scientific evidence. There are a number of people who come into that and give advice that are more related to things that you spoke about, the need to get the country back open. I don't give advice about economic things. I don't give advice about anything other than public health. And I ask, so we simply accept this single-dimensional thinking by public health officials? So wait. All these models that predicted doom from COVID-19 didn't consider deaths caused by the lockdowns from suicide, skipped doctor's appointments, and unemployment. So who should be making these complex policy decisions? Well, at least in the United States, 51 people should be responsible, the president and 50 state governors. And if you expect any of them to issue a mea culpa for a terrible decision, don't hold your breath. Don't expect anyone to admit they were wrong. The public health community, which has been peddling wildly exaggerated predictions of death, will never do that. Nor will the Democrats and the press, who are committed to the narrative that every death in the United States is President Donald Trump's fault. Trump isn't likely to admit wrong either, since he agreed to shutting down the economy after he started taking his cues from public health doomsdayers. And I have been asking this question all along. Why did he listen to them? He's apparently a smart man. He can read people well. He's got the inside scoop. My question is, why? My last fact, the lockdowns will cause more death and destructive than COVID-19 ever did. It's impossible to find all the data to show how destructive unnecessary lockdowns have been, but many people are already trying. Economically, the cost to the United States will be in the multi-trillions. The infection fatality rate is less than one-tenth of the original estimate. The policy itself is killing people. I mean, everyone's heard of the 650,000 people on chemo, half of whom didn't come in. Two-thirds of cancer screenings didn't come in. 40% of stroke patients urgently needing care didn't come in. It is leading hospital systems to furlough and lay off personnel. It's devastating mental health. It's increasing domestic violence and child abuse and has added at least 36.5 million new people to the ranks of the unemployed in the United States alone. Many of these people will lose health insurance, putting them at further risk of declining health and economic distress. Suicides are on the rise. Prescription for sleep and anti-anxiety medications have skyrocketed. And social isolation can increase a person's risk of dying early by up to 50%. All of these phased reopenings are utter nonsense with no science to support them, but they all will be declared a success. Yep, still waiting for your phase one or phase two reopening? Trust me, whomever conjured up your state's plan is quite literally making things up as they go along. And given the extreme range of plans taking place, even in neighboring counties, the odds that they have anything to do with the arc of the virus is exactly zero. But you probably already knew that. The good news is they will all succeed because we never needed to lock down in the first place. Mission accomplished. We still have millions of Americans who are scared to leave their home, and my guess is that many think COVID-19's infection fatality rate is closer to smallpox, that 30%, than it is to the seasonal flu. Much hope is put in vaccines, but come on, that's going to take time, and with the unclear protective immunological response to infection, it is not certain that vaccines will be very effective. Plus, who wants to inject who knows what 
rushed to market warp speed, Bill Gates funded poison into their body. In summary, COVID-19 is a disease that is highly infectious and spreads rapidly through society. It is often quite symptomless and might pass unnoticed, but it also causes severe disease and even death in a proportion of the population. And our most important task is not to stop the spread, which is all but futile, but to concentrate on giving the unfortunate demographic optimal care. Well, you made it this far, so I thank you. You now share my burden in knowing the facts about lockdown lunacy. And thank you to the many courageous medical professionals and scientists and everyday other people who are taking serious risk to their careers to publicly tell the truth. I hope this has helped you to not fear dying from the virus so much that you give up on living. Go outside, run around in the sun, in the rain, take off your shoes and dance and be happy. You are alive, you are safe, and you are needed. Don't let liars define your happiness. Listen to Pat Rulo and Speak Up and Stay Alive Radio. Stay safe from little-known health care and hospital hazards. To learn more, go to speakupandstayalive.com. That's speakupandstayalive.com. All right, that's it, my friends. Doesn't this go by quickly every week? We need more time together. Before next week, be sure to head over to the website, speakupandstayalive.com. I mentioned hospital-acquired infections earlier in today's program. It's still going on. It's happening. There's no oversight. Hospital-acquired infections are still a problem. Get a copy of my book so at least you'll know what they are, what kind of questions you can ask, why they happen, and how you can stay safe. The book is $10. It's called Hospital-Acquired Infections, The Troublemakers and How to Avoid Them at the website, speakupandstayalive.com. Email me at pat at speakupandstayalive.com or leave a message on the radio studio line 440-725-5462. Until next time, I hope you have a healthy and a happy week far away from lies. I am Pat Rulo, and I am the voice for informed choice and patient safety. The information provided in today's broadcast is for informational purposes only and was not intended for use as diagnosis or treatment of a health problem and should not be considered as medical advice. If you've missed part of today's show or just want to share the information with friends, you can listen to all of Pat's previous shows at speakupandstayalive.com. Want even more information? Purchase a copy of Pat's book at speakupandstayalive.com. Once again, it's speakupandstayalive.com. Or you can call Pat at 440-725-5462. Until next week, remember, it's okay to ask others to wash their hands. You have to speak up and stay alive. Hi there, my name is Gina, and I'm part of a global movement of people who are taking action to protect and preserve this great planet of ours. 
I would love for you to join us. Meet me at mrsgreensworld.com and engage with us by listening to our dynamic podcasts, reading our blogs, watching our videos, and connecting with us on social media. We are showing up every day as disruptors for good, being the change we wish to see in the world. Take action today and join us. No, you've been a good friend, and that's in the thick and thin, and I know it's never gonna end. Cause you've been a good friend. I recently narrated and produced an audiobook for author Joni Dark Shepherd. The book is titled Rio, a love story, how my dog saved my life. Most of you know that I was a caretaker for my mom for nearly a decade and also have been rescued by 13 cats, so Joni's book resonated. Her boundless love and commitment to both her mother and sister as they battled cancer was raw, real, and revealing. As the darkness of these times descended upon her, she discovered and allowed the love of her dogs, especially Rio, to light up her life. Joni Dark Shepherd and the honest portrayal of her journey left me crying, smiling, and feeling happy. And isn't that what a good book is supposed to do? A compassionate and passionate read. Get yourself a copy today. Visit Amazon.com or the website JoanAndRio.com. I guarantee it, you'll love the book, Rio, A Love Story, How My Dog Saved My Life. Visit Joan and Rio. Dot com. Yeah.